Today's reading is Daniel 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and people of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an internal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives to them anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its tops touching the sky, visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds, your majesty... You are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. 
Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree that the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails were like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride he is able to humble. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you been paying attention to any recent news headlines? Uh, there's laughter. You say, I, I'd like to avoid that just to t- kind of not increase the anxi- anxiety level in my own life, and I, and I understand that. But if you begin at home, you have kind of the daily election, presidential election bombshells that seem to be coming out all the time. 
It's interesting, I ran across an article from the American Psychological Association. You can't read that probably way in the back, but it is, the headline says, APA survey reveals 2016 presidential election source of significant stress for more than half of Americans. And then it goes on to show which, which category of, of which age group uh, is experiencing the most stress level from this presidential election. That was just this week, and again, this is just this week's news headlines. And then coupled with whatever is dropping on a regular basis, we seem to have a constant stream of WikiLeaks and cyber attacks. And then outside the U.S., once you move outside the U.S., there's Hurricane Matthew with the death toll that it just created. And then as I was listening to the news this week, the, as international aid finally got into that area to try to bring relief to the people in Haiti, there was so much corruption in the distribution of the aid that it wasn't even getting to the people. Meanwhile, U.S. warships were fired on, fired on from Yemen. It was believed to be Iran continuing to be provocative in that area and in international waters. Russia has continued to sustain bombardment of Aleppo, and US has, the U.S. has withdrawn from talks over Syria as accused Russia of war crimes. Russia journalist Dmitry Kisilov said this week that the U.S. response to Syria has, quote, nuclear implications, end quote. Russian state officials and government workers were told to immediately bring back their children from studying abroad as part of, quote, preparing the elites for some big war, even if it is rather conditional, end quote. That's an interesting phrase. I saw an article on Business Insider in which it talked about satellite imagery that shows that North Korea is preparing to yet again test a nuclear device. A shocking new study revealed this week that out of 162 countries in the world, 151 nations are currently at war. If you can do the math, that means that there are 11 countries that are at peace right now. So the world is filled with high-stakes, saber-rattling, stare-downs, standoffs. This is not playground bravado. Someone has said the history never looks like history when you're living through it. But there's something that feels different about where we are in history, where we are in this current time period. Does it feel like that for you? Does it feel to you like kind of the world has gone mad? Or at least it's unraveling at a, at a really rapid pace. Well, one thing that's very clear to me, and that it is this, that the personal, cultural, and global anxiety level has skyrocketed. And I was listening to someone this week, a, a, a podcast of someone over in Australia, and he was talking about how as he travels around, he is hearing this consistently from leaders all around the world, that they're talking about the anxiety level that's in the church as well. And I wonder if we stop to think about it, if we took inventory, if we had the ability to be self-aware that what it's, like, what it's been like for us to live under such a heightened anxiety level, both with this election and with the global stuff that's going on, how it really has impacted us. Maybe we're not aware of it. Maybe some of the stuff that we're super touchy about has, is in part has been precipitated by our own continual anxiety level that we're living with globally and culturally. Just a thought that maybe that might be something worth talking about or thinking about. Well, with all this madness in mind, I want to look at the text read to us today and talk about madness and the Most High God. 
So I'd like to invite you to turn to the text that was read to us today, Daniel 4, page 740 in the Blue Bibles underneath your seat. So either turn on or turn to Daniel 4. My approach is going to be very simple. I want to highlight some cultural and textual details that might help us have a better understanding of this text, and then I simply want to ask those so what question. So what? How might this affect us as a creative minority? How might this help us to live as a creative minority? For those of you who are new to grace, creative minority is a term that was uh, coined by historian Arnold Toynbee. And he was reflecting on the question of, of, are all civilizations just basically doomed to decline over time? And he said no, because civilizations have both a material and a spiritual dimension to them. And so it's very possible that a that a civilization can turn into a new direction, can be renewed and revived, and it doesn't have to just move to inevitable decline. But he said that 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 belonged to the creative minorities. And what is a creative minority? It's a group of people that is in the minority that, that doesn't separate, nor does it engage in syncretism. It doesn't pull away from the culture, nor does it allow itself to be completely assimilated in the culture. Instead, it, it remains connected to the culture and it still remains distinctive so as to shape the culture in a positive way, to make a contribution, a positive contribution. And Rabbi, Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of England picked that up in a seminal article he wrote on, titled On Creative Minorities. He talks about the Jews, the history of the Jews being a creative minority, what they've contributed to society over millennia. And so we're talking about us as the people of God being a minority in our culture today, and yet, what does it look like to live as a creative minority in a world like ours? So now that you have Daniel chapter 4, the structure of Daniel 4, first of all, is on the screen behind me. The structure could be uh, described as A, B, B, A, and no reference to the 70s rock band. Um, The chapter opens with with a leader of an empire speaking to us, but what is... He surprises his listeners because his edict that he gives at the very beginning is unlike what was given in Daniel chapter 3, the chapter right before it, which was an edict to bow down to a statue. Instead, what he opens with is an edict that is an official proclamation of praise. And so since the chapter begins and ends with praise to the Most High God, it should cause the listeners, the way that it's designed, it should cause the listeners to want to know what it is that would cause a pagan emperor to give praise to the Most High God. So even though you know the conclusion by the bookend, you're drawn in to find out what it is that brought him to this. And so that takes us to the story, and I'm not going to be going verse by verse, but I'm just going to be going through it very quickly to make some some kind of some color commentary on it, and then we'll do the so what. Well, you've already heard it read, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, but unlike Daniel chapter 2, he remembers it, it troubles it, troubles him, and he wants it interpreted. And so when no one can interpret the dream, he calls in Daniel, otherwise known, verse 9, as Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. He says that he knows that the spirit of the holy gods, plural, is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. And so he's named him Belteshazzar, which, which is a reference to the god Bel, which was Marduk, and, he's, and it basically says, O Lord, protect the king. That's what his name means. And so he calls him in because he has risen up. 
in the ranks as someone who can interpret dreams. He's been trained in doing it, doing it and he, now he steps in to do it. And what is the content of the dream? You've already heard it read. It's a tree. A tree. Now, if you've been listening carefully to that text being read and you're thinking about it, you should be asking, why in the world would a tree disturb someone? Right? Do you ever have nightmares of trees? Probably not, unless it's kind of the, 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 the Wizard of Oz type of trees where they come out and they become alive and they chase after you. But this is just a tree, a stationary tree. So why is that significant? Well, the image behind me is a, is a, a Syrian tree of life the tree occurs as a major motif in the iconography of that period. So when he saw a tree, this was not just any ordinary tree. The tree had tremendous symbolism in all that area of the world. A man by the name of Simo Parpola in his work, The Assyrian Tree of Life, tracing the, tracing the origins of Jewish monotheism, monotheism in Greek philosophy, says this, the tree represents the divine world order maintained by the king as a representative of the god Asur embodied in the winged disc hovering above the tree. So the king is portrayed, if you can see the image back there, there's, there's the tree in the middle, and then there's this winged image with a, a king in the middle of that winged image. And so the king is portrayed in the image over the tree as the great cosmic provider. He's the keeper of the cosmos. He's the true image of God. He is the perfect man. So there's a lot at stake, really, if you think about this, about the, the iconography, about the association with the king being the great cosmic provider. There's a lot at stake in this dream and the interpretation that Daniel has given because, to be honest, Babylon was a great provider for that entire area. Here's a map of the Babylonian Empire, and you can see that beginning down on the southern side, it... It extended into Egypt. It goes up through uh, Saudi Arabia, through, through, uh, through Israel, uh, Palestine, up into Syria. It goes up into Turkey. It goes over, of course, where modern-day Iraq is, and it goes, extends all the way over into Iran as well. So the Babylonian Empire covered a lot of land, a lot of cultures, and a lot of languages, and it was the great provider for a lot of people. So if, if the cosmic provider is being threatened, then it's possible that the entire empire is being threatened as well as their ability to provide for all these other peoples and cultures and languages. In verses 19 to 27, it shifts from the first person, which is interesting. It's all first person up to this point, to a third person narr narration that gives the interpretation, verses 19 to 27, and the fulfillment, verses 28 to 33. In the story, Nebuchadnezzar expresses his confidence in Daniel. He has access to divine revelation, he says, in verse 18. So Daniel interprets. And in verse 22, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar that he is the tree. The tree will be cut down, but it will not be completely destroyed. There's a yet to God's judgment. It's not final, Daniel is saying to him. The tree, Nebuchadnezzar, will survive, but will be confined to the earth and fed from the earth 
All it knows is the dew of heaven, verse 23. John Goldingay, an Old Testament scholar, says, The dream is a picture of a royal figure being removed from being Lord of all and the source of life for all to being least of all, unable to sustain his own life. And all this will be implemented by God's messengers. They're referred to in the text as the watchers. Now, if you're looking down at your text, you heard at the very end, you heard Steve read verse 37 about pride. And it would be easy to jump to those final words about pride in verse 37 and to read the entire story through that lens of this being a commentary about the dangers of pride. All right? Stay with me here. But the first reason for the tree being cut down is not pride. It's to show that God rules. Look at verse 17. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is reappears in verse 32, almost the same language once again. So you see what this is saying? The goal is for people in general to have a right understanding of human government. The goal is for people in general. This is not just aimed at Nebuchadnezzar, but it's for people in general to have a right understanding of human government. The cutting down of the tree proves who is king. And the tree speaks of human authority that has its place, but has to be kept in its place. I want to just point out a couple other things in the text before then we go to the so what question. Look at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Meaning, you know, come on, step up to the plate. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Interesting response to the king. He wishes that the interpretation and the dream were for the king's enemies and not for the king. Now here's someone, think again with me, here's someone who's been taken into captive, removed from his homeland. He's probably a teenager, 12 to 16. He's been grilled, he's been schooled for three years in everything Babylonian, their theology, their culture, all this stuff with magician and, and diviners and all the school of all that. And yet he wishes well for the king that maybe this dream with all of its negativity would not be for the king. And again, I think this is about understanding what it means to be a creative minority. Again, John Goldingay writes these words. He says, Daniel encourages us here to long for God to have compassion on world rulers, specifically the wicked ones. And he encourages the world to assume that judgment is never inevitable. If we bait the tyrants and dare them to do their worst, they may. Daniel invites us to care about people in power, even people who abuse power, to appeal to their humanness, not their sinfulness, and to treat them as people given a responsibility by God and people who may respond to an appeal to right and wrong. 
In verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar has promised that he can be king from the point that he acknowledges that he actually is not king, but God is. In verse 27, he's given the path to avoid judgment. Do justice on behalf of the needy. Do justice on behalf of the needy. So evidently, the great cosmic provider had failed to provide. Verse 29, 12 months pass. Nebuchadnezzar is out, out admiring the building projects, which truly were significant, the Babylonian building projects that he had created. Uh, a man by the name of Michael Rofe in Cultural Atlas of Mesopotamia and the Ancient Near East, there's an image behind me of the Hanging Gardens. Uh, he says that Babylon contained two of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens and the city walls. Uh, according to one legend, Nebuchadnezzar II built the Hanging Gardens for his median uh, wife, Amethyst, uh, because she had come from northwest Iran and she had lived in the hill country in which it had all this beautiful foliage. She had come to Babylon and it didn't have it. So he says, I'll build you a palace where it, has, where it feels like you're out in the land that you came from. Now, since, this, since the, the legend has moved through history, archaeologists believe that it was probably located in Nineveh, not in Babylon. But nonetheless, the, 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 what Nebuchadnezzar built there was significant. Michael Rofe goes on to say that the location of the Hanging Gardens is in doubt, but the walls have been traced. The outer wall stretched for more than eight kilometers, that's five miles. And according to the 5th century Greek historian Herodotus, had enough space on top to enable a four-horse chariot to turn around. Don't think about your Toyota with a real tight you know, wheel turning, you know, radius type thing. This is a four-horse chariot. I've never ridden in one but it probably requires a little bit more turning space. Uh, so these were massive, massive walls, and this was a massive, massive building project. And Nebuchadnezzar is out admiring this. And look at verse 30. It was read to us. The king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? I, my, my and as we heard it read, while the words were still in the king's mouth, verse 31, there fell a voice from heaven. And that voice tells him that what had been promised is now going to come true. Nebuchadnezzar is banished and he becomes like a beast. This image behind me is from the, uh, the poet, the printmaker, the painter, William Blake, 18th century. And it really captures the, the beast-like qualities of Nebuchadnezzar that are described in the text. If you look at the claws, you look at the skin, which was described as becoming like feathers, it's very sinewy. Uh, the eyes are the eyes, the moment of his recognition right before he becomes human again, where he recognizes what he has become for all this time. Interesting image, powerful image. But the external picture of the beast-like qualities reveals the true insanity of the king who had earlier talked as if he was the most high God, if he, were the, he was the eternal king. As I was reflecting on this, all I could hear were echoes down the corridor of time that finally appear in Paul's letter to the Romans in Romans 1, 22, 
and 23. It's behind me. Where Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. When humanity turns its back on God, when humanity becomes autonomous, we don't become supermen. We become like the beasts of the field. And what is the choice? It's a choice for all humanity. Either live as image bearers under the governance of the world's true king or become bestial. So when his time ends and Nebuchadnezzar asks God for mercy, God restores him to full humanness, which is demonstrated by him giving worship and praise to God. That is a meditation waiting to happen right there. How do you know if someone is truly human? They give worship and praise to God. People who don't like to do that, bestial. They're beasts. And in his confession in verses 34 and following that we heard read to us, it's the confession that the prophet Isaiah invited his contemporaries in Babylon to make in Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 26. And I wish I had time to read it. But I would recommend it to you, Isaiah 40, 12 to 26, where it raises all these questions about the relationship of humanity to, to God as God is the supreme, the, the most high. It's a confession that God is the world's true king. And it says that, that human rule can be suspended, human rule can be terminated, but God's rule is eternal. So the so what in three minutes? So what? I think the purpose of this story is to encourage confidence in the true God, the one true God over against the chaos of human leaders and governments, especially when you're living as a minority, as followers of God. And I think that it gives us hope. It has a potential of giving us hope because it answers the question, who really is in control? Who really is in control of this chaos in our world? And Daniel tells us, The king wins victories only when God gives to them. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The king understands his dreams only when God reveals them through Daniel, his servant. Chapter 2 and 4. And the king can't harm a hair on the head of one of God's people. Chapter 3. So the book of Daniel reveals that every human emperor, king, dictator, prime minister, president, is powerless in his or her own right. And Nebuchadnezzar is an example. He's a warning of the dangers of being led astray by power and self and achievement. But he's even more a promise that earthly authorities are in the hand of God, not merely for judgment, but for his glory. And so knowing this and having confidence in this means this is our moment to be the church. This is our moment to be the church. 
Because the hope of the world is not found in presidents and prime ministers. It is not found in government programs, elections, political activism, political programs, government programs. Pick out whatever you want. All of these things will go the way of the flesh. And by that I mean Paul's word in his description of life lived apart from the Spirit of God. All of these things will go the way of the flesh if they're not animated by the Spirit of God. And this is the moment to embody something different, folks. To embody lives lived by the presence and power of the Spirit with our confidence in God. To have true confidence in God. So as the chaos and the unraveling continues and the anxiety and fears grow as people are drawn into the promises of the strong men and the strong women on the left and the right and as things get polarized to extremes, this is our moment to shine like lights on a hill. I was reflecting on this this week. What if our political passion and fervor that is being demonstrated in arguing with each other on Facebook and other social media forums. What if that passion and that fervor were directed toward the kingdom that has already been inaugurated in the person of Jesus Christ? That in Jesus Christ, God's kingdom has already broken into the world, and if you want to know what the world look, longs for, look at what Jesus did and the response he got. What you see is what we all long for, for things to be made whole, for people to see the blind to be, to be healed, for the deaf to hear, for the lame to be able to walk on and on and on. It goes because this is the kingdom of God. It's the world made right. And God has said yes to that in raising Jesus from the dead and has declared to the world that this indeed is the world's true king. There is another government in play right now, folks. There is another government in play. We are not just left with the left and the right. We are not just left with binary choices. We have the alternative of living in the kingdom of God. Yes? And what if our passion and fervor were directed toward that instead of pushing it out into the anxiety and fear that our culture is demonstrating right now and adding to that anxiety and fear and confusion and chaos. May we not be those people. Instead, may we be people who are known for calling out to God for the sake of the world, asking that his love and his justice and his mercy would be poured out on this world for his glory. Father, we come to you now and asking, I ask you that your justice and love and mercy would be poured out and that we would be people who are known for having a vision for your kingdom. We would be citizens of your kingdom. We would live as this creative minority, showing the world that there is an alternative to the chaos that we're in. Father, I thank you for Daniel. I thank you for this book, for giving it to us, especially at this season. It's incredible. So thank you so much. And I ask that this week that it would, it would seep deep within our lives and the fabric of our lives would become different as a result in the way that we respond to life and to people and to circumstances. 
And now as we transition into worshiping you, may our worship be filled with a vibrancy and a passion and a fervor because you are the world's true king. In your name, amen.